episodes that we're going to be doing on Norman England. This is going to be quite a large one because it covers the whole of the historic environment question. That is the 16 mark question that you're going to answer on Durham Cathedral. So before you listen to this episode I think it's very very important that you have listened to all of the other Life in Norman England episodes. It's particularly important that you have listened to and am absolutely secure on all of the stuff to do with religion in Norman England. If there's any of that stuff that you're not absolutely set on, you are going to struggle quite significantly with some of the things we're going to talk about. So, assuming that you have listened to the other ones and that you are up to date with your knowledge on all these various bits and pieces let's dig in and have a look at Durham Cathedral let's kick off with asking ourselves what is a cathedral well it is a church basically it is a church on steroids it is a church but bigger now that means it shares some of the functions of a church it is a place of worship it is where services can be carried out but it's bigger and that means it serves more purposes there are more functions here there are administrative functions a cathedral by definition is a place where you can find a bishop and a bishop is responsible for running a diocese which is an administrative area of the church so all of the smaller churches in the area with their parish priests report to the local bishop who is based in a cathedral so there's your first thing a cathedral has an administrative role in the running of the church then we need to talk about the size when we say cathedrals are big we're not joking physically how they make them so big is something we'll talk about in a little more detail later on but they are massive why well you have to remember that in medieval art and architecture is a form of art in medieval art size equals importance if you look at a picture of the nativity created during the medieval period you'll see the donkeys and you'll see the three wise men and you'll see Mary and you'll see Joseph and you'll see the shepherds and the angel Gabriel and all the other things you would imagine and you will also see the baby Jesus and the baby Jesus will be bigger than all of the other figures he will be a giant baby and that's not because he's physically a giant baby it's because he is the Christ he is the most important thing in that picture therefore he is shown large so size is a statement of importance and that is why cathedrals are large that's the first thing they are important therefore they are built to reflect that importance next there is also the idea that the building itself is a monument to the glory of God. It should remind those people who come in of the power 
of God. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He sees all. And an architectural reminder of the size of the power of God and the smallness of the individual person is absolutely perfect. And it is baked into what a cathedral does. Next, there is the idea that constructing this building itself is an act of worship. So it's not just that worship occurs by coming into the building. The building of it is an act of worship. Every brick that is laid, every piece of wood that is sanded, every tile that is put in place is, by the very virtue of its work, a piece of worship. Therefore, the larger the building, the more glorious the worship. And this is also important when we look at the idea of penance, this idea that you will be uh, encouraged to build a church if you have committed some particularly egregious sin. I point you towards uh, Battle Abbey, the place that William is told he has to build in order to wash the blood of all those people killed at Hastings off his hands. And he builds an abbey on the site of the battle. And this building of it, the investment of the funds and the investment of the time, this sacrifice is a penance, is a way of paying back the sins because it is an act of worship. So there's the second thing. Building the cathedral itself is an act of worship. Next, there is a driving force for the Normans to build these cathedrals. And we'll dig into this again in a little more detail when we talk about the actual architecture of Durham Cathedral. But it is that these cathedrals are built in a Norman style. So building them, first off, as we said, there's an administrative thing there which allows the Normans to solidify their control over the church in England. But secondly, by building them in a Norman style, they manage to conduct a form of psychological warfare upon the Anglo-Saxon inhabitants. Just like with castles, this continuing reminder of we are here. This is our country now. And the symbols of power and importance are ours, not yours. Finally, in absolute times of need, a cathedral, because it's built large with thick walls, is a place of refuge. It is a place of security. And that becomes particularly important with Durham Cathedral because of its location in the north. We'll pick that up again later. But just to summarise then, the function of a cathedral is to provide a place of worship, it is to provide a monument to the glory of God. It is to provide a reminder of the power of the Norman church in England. It is to create an administrative centre for the church in England. It can be to act as a form of penance. And it is to act as a form of security, safety, sanctity, a place of refuge. Finally... And this is one that you need to remember because it's an easy one to overlook. A cathedral is a boon to the economy. 
the construction of a cathedral requires the use of many, many workers. It requires the use of masses of resources, a huge investment in funds, which is good for the local economy. But not just that, once your cathedral is built, and very often it will have relics of various saints in it, it will attract pilgrims. And those pilgrims and the pilgrimages they go on are a major source of income for the church. So the cathedral itself, once it is built, will act as an economic engine for the local area. Having got our heads around the function of a medieval cathedral, let's now have a little think about the form of a medieval cathedral. Now we've already said that it's going to be large. It's going to be tall, it's going to be imposing. It will be built in an area which is clear and open and there's no other buildings around. But what does the building itself look like? The easiest way to imagine this is to look down on it. And as you look down on the cathedral from a plan view, you're going to see something that looks very much like a cross. Now I imagine at this point we don't really need to rehearse the importance of the symbolism of the cross to Christianity, certainly in the Middle Ages, but just as a very quick reminder, the key idea behind Christianity is that Christ sacrifices himself. He dies on the cross to wash away the original sin of mankind. Therefore, the cross, the crucifixion, is the symbol of the salvation of mankind. So you have the cross laid on the ground. And the cross, as we know, has a long bar and short arms going across it. The head of the cross in the cathedral will point east towards Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And that means that the further east within the cathedral you go, the holier the area. So the high altar is over towards the east. The area where most of the congregants sit will be further west, and the peasants and the people in the cheap seats will be kept near the doors far at the west end of it. So the long central line of the cathedral, we would call this the nave, and that is where most of the celebrants will sit. At the east end of the nave there will be the high altar, where the priest will stand and will say mass with his back turned towards the congregation. Just before you reach the high altar will be the area which is called the choir. Q-U-I-R-E. This is where the monks or the people who live in the chapter house would sit, and very often they would sing during the course of the services. So you can see where the word choir actually develops from. The arms of the cross, which is the two short bits which will be running north to south, are called the transepts. So you will have a north transept and a south transept. In some churches, those transepts will also form the home for chapels, which are smaller churches contained within the body of the overall large cathedral. Most of these chapels would become the house for uh, relics for the lesser saints, maybe. So you'd have a chapel added on various parts of the church, possibly outside of the main cross shape. You could also then have an abbey added on, a monastery added on to that overall shape, but the core of the cathedral will always be that cross shape. So now we have the function, and now we have the form. So let's turn our attention to how you actually go about constructing it. Building a cathedral is 
a time-consuming undertaking. Durham Cathedral took the best part of 30 years to construct. The building is huge. There are no JCBs. There are no earth movers. There is no scaffolding, as we would understand the term. Everything has to be done by hand, and everything has to be done by skilled craftsmen. So first, the materials have to be gathered. They have to be dug out of the very bedrock. They then have to be formed. So there would be a stone park somewhere nearby where the blocks of stone, sandstone, limestone, whatever it is they're using, are being formed into the right shapes for the right parts of the building. A scaffold of wood would have to be constructed. Huge wheels and blocks and tackles to lift these massive chunks of stone up there and people scampering around. There's no safety harnesses. Accidents are frequent. The sheer number of people involved in the construction of a cathedral is mind-boggling. But to give you an example, Westminster Abbey, by the time you reach 1253, where the abbey is more or less constructed and they're just finishing off the bits and pieces, is using 500 workers per week. Lots of different types. So they have some masons, they have some lead workers, they have various bits and pieces, but 500 men a week. And because the undertaking is so long, 30 years, you will get families whose entire working lives this is. Their father worked on this cathedral, and then they work on this cathedral, and then their son carries out his apprenticeship working on this cathedral. It is a massive economic boost to the local area. So you understand the practicalities of building it. What makes Durham Cathedral different? Well, it's all a matter of architecture. You see, Durham Cathedral is the first of the Norman cathedrals to be built in England. It is the first one to be built in a new style, which is designed to bring the architecture of the Norman cathedrals more in line with what you can see in Rome. Indeed, Durham Cathedral's original floor plan is exactly the same as St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The building has exactly the same dimensions as the church in which the Pope himself runs the entire Catholic Church. As a little aside, the Archbishop's seat, the throne on the Archbishop in Durham Cathedral, is exactly the same height as the throne of the Pope in Rome. Again, a message there about importance, a message there about the relative importance of this church and how it saw itself. So what's different about this style of cathedral? It's called the Romanesque style. And at this point, you really, really need to have some pictures of Durham Cathedral in front of you. Because if you do, what you will notice is that it is symmetrical. You will see repetition of the same shapes over and over again. The same arched windows. The same patterns of pillars and stonework repeated. And why? Well, first off, it creates a sense of balance. It creates a sense of symmetry and proportion. But perhaps more importantly, it makes construction an awful lot easier. Because all you have to do is to create one side of it and then mirror it. So all you have to do is create two pieces of each piece of brickwork and you're away home. It is very, very different to the simple blocky style of Anglo-Saxon churches. It's also very different to the simple blocky style of Norman square keep towers for castles. This is a very different, very ornate look, but it is beautiful and rather graceful. And this style is called 
Romanesque. Repetition, symmetry, proportion. It is a very Norman style. Another thing you will notice when you look at your pictures of Durham Cathedral is that it is very, very large. Now, we talked about the importance of size, of size equaling importance. But Durham Cathedral is huge. It is massive. No one in England had seen the like. No one had seen a building this big before. It was awe-inspiring. And the reason it was able to be built so large was because of two new architectural advances, both of which work together. The first is the pointed arch. Up until this point, most buildings have been made with a simple rounded arch, which is absolutely fine. It supports your walls and it supports your ceiling. But a rounded arch only works on rooms that are square and sections of buildings that are square. So it limits the span the size of the building you can create because everything has to be done in squares. Obviously, if you picture the look of a, a cross from above, like a cathedral, it's rectangular. The pointed arch allows you to create rectangular sections of buildings. And also, a pointed arch is able to bear more of a load. This allows you to create taller ceilings. That's the first thing, then. The pointed arch allows you to create rectangular sections and allows you to create higher ceilings. Next, you have the ribbed vault. And I cannot describe a ribbed vault to you. You have to look at a picture of the roof of Durham Cathedral. There are many, many pictures online, and there are pictures that we've put on our own website for you to have a look at. When you look at it, you will see that it is almost like a series of crosses, X's, as you look down it. And those ribbed vaults allow you to create lighter roof sections. That means your ribbed vaults can be further apart. That allows you to encompass a wider space. And also, because they bear the weight better, they also allow you to create a higher ceiling. So you have these ribbed vaults which allow you to create a higher ceiling formed of pointed arches which themselves allow you to also create a larger ceiling. So you can see that when you put the two things together you end up with a building which is massive and spacious and when you walk through the doors you are immediately aware of your smallness and your insignificance in the face of the greater glory of God. And that is what Durham Cathedral is designed to do. Having talked about what Durham Cathedral is designed to do then, let's talk about why it's actually at Durham. And the simple answer is, it's all to do with St Cuthbert. Durham Cathedral is built as a shrine to St Cuthbert. So who is St Cuthbert? Well... He was born somewhere around 634 AD, somewhere in Northumbria. He dies in 687, but before he dies, he has become the Bishop of Lindisfarne, of Holy Island, one of the most holy sites in the north of England. After he dies, a number of miracles are associated with him, which, after all, is what you expect when somebody is a saint. And... A particular miracle 
increases his importance enormously. Before 1066, England was a number of disparate kingdoms. This is long, long before. There's a number of disparate kingdoms, several of which were attacked and taken over by Vikings. The entire north of the country is controlled by the Vikings until eventually one king of one of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms pulls together all of the Anglo-Saxons and drives the Vikings out. This man is called Alfred, the only king in English history to whom people have appended the title The Great. Alfred the Great creates the Kingdom of England and drives out the Vikings. But the key thing from our point of view is that the night before the grand and glorious battle in which he defeats the Viking menace, he has a vision. He has a vision of St Cuthbert, who encourages him and tells him that God is on his side and tells him how to win the battle. Alfred goes out and he wins. And, being a medieval monarch, he is aware that he won because God was on his side. And more specifically, God was on his side through the medium of St Cuthbert. Therefore, the English royal house adopts St Cuthbert as their patron saint. And this, in short order, makes St Cuthbert the most popular saint in England to who most people will pray. At this point, probably worthwhile having a very quick aside just to talk about intercessory prayer. The idea in the medieval Catholicism is that God is busy. God has a lot of things on his plate. He does not have time to simply sit and worry about what poor Unferth needs out there or what Ranulf Flambard needs over there. So what you do is you pray to a saint, a particular saint who helps people, watches over people like you. So St. Christopher looks after travellers. St. Bede looks after historians. You pray to the particular saint and that saint will intercede on your behalf. Intercessory prayer. And you are more likely to get the attention of the saint and get them to help you with your particular problem the closer you physically are to some relic of that saint their bones their head their clothes whatever the case may be so you can see that when saint cuthbert becomes popular people want to pray to him he now becomes the de facto patron saint of england for want of a better term and so people wish to visit his body where is his body well that's where the story gets a little bit complicated you see cuthbert was the Bishop of Lindisfarne, so he was buried on Lindisfarne. But then the Vikings started attacking. Holy Island is the first place they attack. And so it is decided that these holy relics, the body of St. Cuthbert, has to be moved. So they pick him up and they haul him off on the way. Unfortunately, they take him as far as Chesley Street, but then there's more Viking raids coming further into the north. So they pick him up and they move him again. And poor St. Cuthbert's body gets hauled around all over the north of England, up and down and round and about and across to Carlisle and back over to Yorkshire, down as far as Ripon, back up. He's all over the shop. Poor fellow must have been dizzy. Until one day, the monks who are carrying his body in a coffin on the back of a cart get stuck in the mud. And the place they get stuck in the mud is on a river. 
near a headland, a raised piece of headland. And they look at this and they think that this might be a particularly good place to set up shop. Some versions of the story have it that they have a vision of St Cuthbert who tells them that this is where they should be. In any case, this becomes the site of Durham Cathedral. And this is where Cuthbert comes to rest. And this, therefore, is where everybody comes on their pilgrimages to pray to St Cuthbert, to pay their respects to St Cuthbert, the patron saint of the Royal House of England. This is not the only shrine which is there. I mentioned the Venerable Bede earlier. He's from Jarrow, he's from the north, he's a, a saint, he's a scholar, he's the first English historian, later becomes the patron saint of historians. He is laid to rest in the Galilee Chapel, which is also part of Durham Cathedral, and this therefore becomes another site of um, pilgrimage and visit. Over time, the cathedral is added to a chapter of monks, an order of Benedictine monks inhabits there as well, and an abbey is built, added onto the side, and then you get a monastic community. Alongside all of the other bits and pieces that they would bring in, there's also the economic side. They start producing books in the scriptorum, which makes it a centre of learning. So you can see that religiously, Durham Cathedral is important, but it is also important politically and militarily. Next to Durham Cathedral is a castle. It's a Mott and Bailey castle. It's immediately recognisable as a Norman one. And you have to ask yourself, why would you build a cathedral and a castle into the same compound? And it's all a matter of geography. Durham is in the north of England. It is not far from the Scottish border. It is, really, the Scottish marches. And exactly like the Welsh marches, this is a major issue for William. It is an area he needs to secure and he needs to control. At the same time, he's trying to extend his control over the church. The solution is elegant. The solution, after the harrying of the north, when it is important for William to be able to lock down his control of this area, is to place the archbishop who is now a trusted Norman churchman, in as a marcher lord. So he has the same powers as a marcher lord. He can declare war, he can raise his armies, he can manage the land as he sees fit. And this new role is called the Prince-Bishop. And Durham, even today, is known as the land of the Prince-Bishops. And this is a major block in William's defence of the North. Durham Cathedral, its associated castles, and the Prince Bishops are there to lock down the northern frontier and to hold the Scots at bay. So you can see that Durham Cathedral becomes very important on a number of different fronts. And it's at this point that we need to have a little think about how Durham Cathedral connects to the rest of Norman England. And this basically is going to be the meat of your 16 mark question, your historic environment question. It's going to be, how does Durham Cathedral reflect on all of the other stuff you know about Norman England? And you can very easily start to break it down. It goes something like this. We know about the changes to religion during the Norman period. 
The cathedral is an obvious example of that. You have a Benedictine order of monks coming in with their very strict view, brought in just like the Cluniacs to uh, re-energize the monastic approach in Norman England. Not only that, you have the new control, the new organization of the diocese brought in by William and Lanfranc, represented by this cathedral, which becomes the administrative centre for the entire church in the north of England. Then also, you have the monks producing the work, the knowledge, the books in the scriptorum, which figures into the idea of education and the idea of the church as a centre of knowledge and in charge of schools and all of the other bits and pieces. Then you have the religious side of things, the idea of the importance of pilgrimage, the idea of the importance of intercessory prayer. And we've already talked about how that includes St Cuthbert and how important the cathedral is in terms of pilgrimage. And likewise, you have to think about how pilgrimage leads to the economy. Think about the amount of money that's being brought into the city of Durham, into the local surrounding area, not only by the pilgrims, but also by this 30-year construction of this magnificent building itself. Then you have a think about the role of the prince bishops. They are not just bishops, they are also landholders. They're collecting tithes, but they're collecting taxes. They're raising army. So Durham Cathedral links into the idea of landholding and lordship with this role as quasi-marcher lords, the ability for them to give out land and take it back and pass laws, which of course leads into the idea of control. And as we know, this is a major issue for William. He has to lock down his control of England in the early years of his reign. And Durham, oh, Durham's an important part of that. Not just through the marcher lords, but also through the psychological impact of this big Norman building, this statement to everybody in the area, we are here and we are staying. And also the idea of it locking down control of the north after the harrying of the north. So you can see that as well as being a place of worship, Durham Cathedral is also a place of commerce. It's a place of money creation. It's a place of control. It's a place of government. It's a place of administration. It's a place where the Normans can control England through psychology, intimidation, fear, worship, love of God, trade. Durham Cathedral is the perfect historical environment study because it links to everything we have talked about. There are peasants in the area who work on the fields belonging to the church. There is no aspect of life in Norman England which Durham Cathedral cannot shed some light on. And that is why it is worthwhile investigating in detail. And if you get familiar with all of the various little details, you will do very, very well on that final 16-mark question. Because remember, you know what it is going to be on. It will be on Durham Cathedral and some way in which it links to the rest of Norman England. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.